I'm going to kick it off this time. Normally, Lee kicks it off, but this is a very special episode. So welcome to episode six of Means of Creation. Uh, and this is a talk show where normally we interview folks who are building tech companies that help people do what they love for a living. But today, I am turning the tables on my co-host, Lee. And Lee and Adam are talking about how they independently discovered the passion economy thesis. They're basically like the Newton and Leibniz of the passion economy is what I like to say. They both came at it from different angles, but ultimately identified the same incredibly important and exciting thing. So a bit about Adam, you probably already know his background, but he's the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money podcast, New Yorker staff writer, and author of The Passion Economy, which is most relevant to this um, conversation today. And it's a book that explores stories of people who have followed their dreams to craft a livelihood. And so Lee and I started the show because we want to encourage innovation in the passion economy and want to help people unite their passions with their professions. So it is a huge honor to have Adam here today. And uh, before we get started, a quick plug. The show is brought to you by the Everything newsletter bundle at everything.substack.com, where you can find very high quality thinking and writing about business. And then you should also check out Lee's Substack, lee.substack.com, and Adam's Substack, which is passion.substack.com. And I think really a great place to start is, is to start with Adam. And I'm just really curious to hear, like, what's the origin story of, of how you got to thinking about the passion economy? Yeah, it, it started more thinking about all the things that are wrong in the economy. And yeah. I was a reporter in Iraq in 03 and 04, and then, you know, which where I, I was actually an economics reporter for Marketplace. And, you know, you guys are younger, but you may, it didn't turn out so well, the U.S. occupation of Iraq. And, and it, from an economic standpoint, it was a real tragedy, too, because there did seem to be a moment of releasing the kind of burden of corruption and just wild economic inefficiency. Then I came back to the U.S. To be honest, the next couple of years were a little boring as an economics reporter. But then the financial crisis became my core focus. And like many people, I think like for the country as a whole, the financial crisis was both a short-term massive disaster that really covering it in some ways was scarier than covering the war in Iraq. There were days, particularly in September, October of 2008, where really I was talking to all the people running the crisis response. And it really felt like the world was falling apart. And serious people were talking about yeah. the end of civilization, the collapse of our way of life. And, and it was intense and scary. And then that kind of gave way to growing recognition of income inequality, of overall collapse, of how the US economy, the global economy worked. And, and so I was really mired in a very dark, difficult world. And frankly, still am. I mean, I, those are all very important factors. But I started to see what was happening as a real structural shift in how the economy works that I think of as kind of as big as moving from agriculture to industry. It's that size of a change. And like any shift, yes, there's enormous real pain and very serious negative things to pay attention to. But sort of to my surprise, there's also incredible opportunity and not just for the 0.1% or the very, very rich. There's incredible opportunity for everyone. Yeah. And that eventually became the passion economy. I will say that it was reading Lee pretty late in my journey that really fully cemented it. I mean, as you said, we kind of came at this totally independently, didn't know about each other, didn't know we were both tossing this phrase around. And, and that really helped me kind of cement like, oh, okay, this isn't just a thing for like 
some small business people. This is a, this could scale, this could be a big change in how from the tiniest to the biggest businesses work. Totally, totally. Lee, I'm curious how you got into it. What's your origin story? Yeah, so for context, for those of you guys who don't know me, I spent the last four years of my career at Andreessen Horowitz, which is this venture capital firm in the Bay Area. I was working on the consumer investing team there and at A16Z, consumer investing historically has been synonymous with marketplace investing. We love marketplace businesses. We think they have great network effects that make them really defensible businesses. And so during the course of my time there, I probably saw hundreds, if not thousands of marketplace businesses. And it was that work that really led me to the development of this thesis. Because when I first joined the firm in 2016, I got a ton of founders coming to me, pitching their startups as like the Uber for X, Uber for, you know, grocery delivery, Uber for whatever. And it was all about on-demand convenience, simplicity for the end user, which meant commoditizing the worker to some degree because you needed to facilitate that on-demand component. And over time, over the years, I started seeing more and more marketplaces that were not on demand that were pitching an interesting value proposition, not only to the end consumer, but also to the worker. So they were positioning their marketplaces and platforms as an interesting way for people to be able to monetize differentiated skills and creativity and what they really enjoyed doing, as opposed to just giving them a task that they needed to complete as quickly as possible, as conveniently as possible for the end consumer. There were lots of new platforms emerging that were enabling people to take some interesting facet of themselves, be it their special expertise or knowledge or a skill that they had and build loyalty with the end customer, such as to be able to maintain greater ownership and autonomy and pricing power over the service that they were offering. And so I realized that there was this trend of new platforms that enabled individuals to monetize individuality at scale and be able to take greater control of their careers in a way that the gig economy platforms never really enabled them to. And the distinction was really between commoditizing the worker in the gig economy, where they're all treated as entirely fungible and substitutable with each other, to in the passion economy, they were non-commoditized. They really emphasized and leaned into their individuality in order to make money. So it was it was a combination of that work experience that led me to this thesis, as well as my own personal background, which is that I come from a family of artists. My great uncle is a calligrapher in China. My aunt is a calligrapher. My mother is an art teacher. Um, and I've just seen them throughout my life monetize creativity and cobble together different sources of income by selling their work or by teaching or by writing books or whatever it is. And realizing it was so difficult for, for many, many people in the world to be able to monetize this kind of special talent. And they were struggling to do so at times in their career, but they had done it. They were really restricted to just the customers in their local area. But that new internet platforms, I felt, could represent a way for, for other people to be able to turn what they loved into a career at scale because they could reach anyone all over the world. And so all of these thoughts were in my head when I published that blog piece last fall called The Passion Economy and the Future of Work. And after I published that, a lot of people alerted me to the fact that Adam was also talking about this and and had this podcast called The Passion Economy. And I think it was it was really coincidental because originally we weren't even going to go with that title for the blog. The, the origin story there was that we were originally going to call the blog uh, Passions Not Gigs and the Future of Work. 
something like that. Passions, not mm -hmm. gigs, digital platforms in the future of work. And we changed it at the last minute because there was a lot of internal conversation about how we didn't want to deposition our gig economy investments. And so we subtracted the, the gig part of that and turned it into the passion economy, which has become a term that people use now. I think it's a very lucky coincidence that you both landed on the same term because it's always nice when we can like skip to the part where it's like, let's just talk about the thing rather than like everyone has their own label for it or whatever. And I think it gives the, it gives it a lot of momentum as like, uh, like the, the name recognition almost of the term is like huge now, you know? And so that's great that it's like this joining of forces symbolized by our zoom today. <laughs> but um, I'm curious to hear how y'all, how y'all met each other. I mean, I know I wanted to reach out to you. I can't remember who reached out first. Oh. I think I maybe Twitter DM'd you and reached out. And then on your next trip to the Bay Area, we had a meeting in person at the office and just realized that we shared a lot of really similar views, but we're coming at it from completely different angles. You from the more humanistic, journalistic storytelling perspective and me from obviously a venture investing perspective. And yeah, the rest is history. And I think we've been intellectual co-conspirators ever since then. Yeah, absolutely. And talk often. I, I remember like at first, the very first, just the idea that Andreessen Horowitz, someone there wrote something about the passion economy. My initial thought was, oh, shoot, they're taking it in the wrong direction. Because I was thinking my book, my podcast, it's really about small business people who have figured out a way to thrive in an industry going through change by figuring out some of the new rules. And I saw that as the opposite of the Silicon Valley VC choice. Part of my motivation in writing the book is I felt as a consumer of books, business books, there's so VC is a relatively small part of our economy. And there's probably like 50 VC books for every book there for small business people. And, and I wanted something that wasn't part of that. I love a lot of those books. It's not to criticize VC. I like VC. I find it fascinating. But it just, I was like, no, no, my thing is nothing to do with that. So that was sort of the attitude. And, but, I mean, I think within the first few sentences of Lee's writing, I was like, oh, and it just blew my mind. It really mm. expanded my understanding. And this concept of marketplaces to me, I mean, honestly, I wish I hadn't finished the book when I met Lee, because it, it, it shifted a lot of how I understand how big this can be. I do just want to say, because my dad's on the line, it's interesting that like Lee, I grew up in an artistic world. My dad's an actor and I grew mm -hmm. up in Greenwich Village in a building called West Beth, where my dad is right now. That's all artists. So all the grownups I knew growing up were broke artists. And, and I grew up in a world where you sort of chose, you could live your passion and be broke, or you could be a boring business person. Those were sort of yeah. the two choices. And, and I think I was drawn to reporting on money and business as a kind of Oh, my mom's on as well. Okay. And my Amazing. mother has <laughs> also has had a very passion-filled life in theater and dance. And anyway, I just, I just found that interesting that Lee and I share the same background, which maybe yeah. made us sensitive to this. But this idea of matching of marketplaces, like if, if you think of what is allowed now, what is possible now, the way I think about it is before the industrial revolution, like say the second industrial revolution where it really kicks into gear from 1880 to 1920. Before that, almost all material goods, services were made locally, often just by your mom or dad. 
And it would be very rare for anybody to buy something or contract with someone who they didn't personally know, who their grandparents didn't know that person's grandparents. It was this very local intimate thing. And then you get the massive scale of the 20th century, which for the very first time, there's not just luxury goods like spices and the most elite soaps and fabrics. There's just everyday goods are transported long distance. And there's this host of problems that were created. How do I trust something that's made far away from me? How do I, if I don't have a deep social context for the manufacturer? And those solutions were branding, they were food and safety laws, you know, that we can think of all the, you know, all, all the ways those problems were solved. But now you can have both. You can have, I can have the experience of, I want material goods or services from a, from my little village, my group of people who share some passion, whatever it is, but they don't have to be near each other because we can find each other. We can match through, usually through the internet, but there are other ways as well. And I was aware of that part of it, like, oh, if I'm providing a service, I can find people. But Lee opened my eyes to the idea that that intermediation, the market that matches these two people, um, the buyer and the seller, or a community that together buy, makes and buys and sells, that the profundity of that marketplace. That was not, I think I had sort of thought, oh, Amazon's just going to do that or whatever. Right. And Lee really helped me understand that the nature of that market, the way it works, the way different markets work is, is really the whole ball game at the end of the day. Yeah, I often talk about how the passion economy combines both elements of like this pre-industrial revolution world in which people were self-employed and created things that they loved and, and did things on their own independently and really put their heart and soul into their work. It combines that element with this very industrial age notion of producing things at scale. And, and that's enabled by the internet because people are now able to lean into these small niches where probably it was very difficult to monetize that niche if you were just restricted to your local geographic region. Yeah. Um, but people can leverage now these social networks and marketplaces that have reached massive scale and connect with people all over the world that share that interest in that particular topic and be able to monetize and craft a livelihood from a relatively small number of customers around the world. And so it combines that element of like a pre-industrial sort of cottage industry element with the scale that's afforded by internet platforms. Totally. It reminds me in a kind of almost like funny and maybe even cheesy way of like, remember that book, The World is Flat, where it was like, oh, like all of yeah. a sudden competition is global. And like, we had no clue what that really meant at the time. And now like 2020, it's sort of been going on long enough that it's starting to like have more of a form. And it's like, there's this, it's not that, you know, just like wages get driven down to zero or that, although that does happen obviously, but it's like, there's also alternatives that we should like seek to like foster <laughs> and cultivate where it's like, okay, cool. You can do something really special that a lot of people not necessarily those who just live near you will like, and that'll, that'll actually sustain you. And we have, it's like, you know, one of my favorite ideas from, from strategy is Michael Porter says like, you shouldn't compete to be the best. You should compete to be unique. And, and this sort of really embodies a lot of that. And I love it. Curious to hear like how, how would y'all define the passion economy? Like where's the edge of it? Where is it no longer really a part of it anymore? And like, do y'all have the same definition or has your definition changed over time as you've engaged with each other's work? I mean, definitely mine has, I mean, I, I think I've made clearly has been a huge impact in 
on how I see it. Although, you know, I still feel like in, in the Adam Lee, you know, division of labor, like I'm going to be focused on, on my people. We can get into Etsy later. I, people often think we're talking about like craftspeople who make, you know, ceramic mugs and maybe, but probably not, but it can be lawyers. It can be accountants. It can, it can, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a traditional passion business. So basically it's, to me, it's a two-step process. It's figuring out that you have a bundle of abilities, skills, and interests that are unique to you just by definition. And they can be hard skills, like you're just an amazing computer programmer, but can just be you're unusually empathetic or you're good at getting a group of people to reach a consensus, whatever it is. You have yeah. a set of things you're good at and a set of things you really love whether that's physical things like fountain pens or painting, or it's just soft skills. But that, if all you do is look inside, then, you know, maybe you could have a hobby or you could be a broke artist, but then right. there's meeting the market and there's finding out how do those things match with some group of people out there who want the thing I'm offering and are willing to pay a premium for it, not a commoditized price for it. And that's where the marketplace is key because you're now not talking about one dimensional, you're talking about an incredibly complex definition of what your unique products and services are that isn't going to just easily fit into some obvious framework. So when you think about how do I match my thing with the people out there who want the thing that I'm giving, that's where the marketplace becomes key. But once you do find that, you're sort of out, you're in a different economy. That's why I do think it's important yeah. to call it the passion economy. Because the other economy is supply and demand. It's based on, you know, the, I mean, you talk to economists, you price at the point of indifference. That's literally the strategy for pricing mass market goods, the point of indifference. And we're talking about pricing at the point of maximum intensity. It's, right, the, yeah. it, it, it's a total refutation of how business works. So that to me is the passion economy. That felt very long-winded for a guy who has like talked about the passion economy forever. I should have a happy <laughs> phrase, but. No, no, it's great. I'm curious, one, one question that came up in the middle of that that I shared is like, what if you don't know exactly what your passion is yet? There's, there's one idea that's like, you just need to get really good at something and passion is more of a symptom of, of mastery maybe than like a cause. I'm curious if you subscribe to that or if, you, if there's like a different thing or if that even maybe just feels like out of scope uh, to your work. I would say this to me is another, like when I have regrets, uh, I mean, I'm very proud of my book. Everyone should buy it and read it. But, you know, wishing I had talked to Lee before. And then, you know, I don't feel like I really cracked my passion until I was 38 when I started Planet Money and sort of figured out, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to take complicated economic and business ideas and sort of find a way to make them into narratives for a broad audience. That's kind of my thing. And, and passion, I think is very, I'm suspicious when you meet like a 15 year old who's like, I want to do this in this way. Like, right. that's great, but maybe you should expose yourself to a lot of opportunities. So yes. I don't think passion exists pre-made. I don't think it's immutable. I think you can have a few different passions over the course of your life. Probably if you're having a new one every six weeks, you might have problems, but, right. and, and I do think <clears throat> it is, it takes depth. It takes looking deep. So when I talk to college kids, I find college kids often are very anxious about this. Well, I don't know what my passion is. Yeah. And my advice is, 
find something that seems like not awful or a little interesting, start doing it, start paying a lot of attention to your feelings, do all the things that maybe a guidance counselor in the 50s would have told you not to do. What feels right, what doesn't feel right? What do you notice that you're good at that you're not good at? I also recommend that people talk to those who love them and know them, but speak honestly. Yeah. What am I good at? What, am I, what do I think I'm good at that I'm not good at? Because I do think it is a journey. It takes time. I mean, it, it and and I think that's appropriate. It should, you know, it should take five years, ten years longer to to hone your passion. Yeah. But along the way, you should be accumulating awareness. Like if you've spent five years in a job you hate and all you know is that's not your passion, you probably should have triggered a change earlier. Totally. Totally. I just want to say definitionally, my definition of what constitutes the passion economy has sort of evolved over time as well. But the, the sort of definition that I've settled upon is, and this is all evolving, that I define it as the economy in which people are able to pursue what they love for a living. And closely coupled with that is the notion that these are types of work where the worker is non-commoditized. They're mm. providing a service or a product that the end user does not view as a commodity. In other words, the end user actually cares about the individual who is providing that service or product and is establishing a relationship with them rather than just viewing the worker as a means to an end of getting something. I think when that is in place, when that notion of non-commoditized work is in place, that gives the worker more power to have greater ownership over their work, see more upside, maintain pricing power, resist commoditization, resist automation by you know self-driving cars or something. And the implication from that is that the worker is able to establish loyalty with the consumer and potentially bypass employment and bypass having a company that disintermediates them away from the customer. So instead of having to be employed, for instance, at a media organization, a writer could build up an audience that is loyal to them, that wants to hear from them and directly publish something like a newsletter to them. Or a teacher, instead of being employed at a school, can aggregate together a bunch of students who enjoy taking their classes and offer a course directly to them and be able to monetize off of a smaller base of loyal customers. And I also wanna say that like a lot of times people often confuse the passion economy with the creator or influencer economy. And whenever I talk about the passion economy, I, I inevitably get people who are like, oh, you mean the influencer economy? Mm. And I, I definitely think that that is a subset of the passion economy, but they are not synonymous. And the passion economy is much broader than the creator or influencer world. Definitely creators and influencers are one of the professions that is growing really rapidly and it's digitally native and they never had a, a company disintermediate them from their customers. But I think it's broader than that and it encompasses all sorts of non-commodity work. So totally. some surprising examples of the passion economy and the types of work that are included that people might not even realize are, for instance, like this company Dumpling gives grocery delivery workers everything they need to start, run, and grow a business, acknowledging the fact that some consumers really care about the shopper that they're working with and want to work with the same shopper over and over again and actually view that shopping behavior as like a, a skilled form of work and they have preferences of which grocery shopper they actually want to work with. There's an example of a Chinese platform called PDG or Pinjojua, which allows farmers and agricultural workers to sell produce directly to consumers in cities. 
and they're live streaming themselves. They're telling stories about their farm and their family, and they're actually building loyalty with the end consumers. I like prior to hearing about this platform, I never even really thought about farmers as being passion economy workers. Yeah. And then there's a couple of companies who are enabling salespeople to build their own book of business and cultivate user loyalty. And they acknowledge that salespeople are not commodity workers. Examples here would be like easy up for car sales or bravado for B2B sales. So I think the the scope is actually rather broad and the, the commonality is the worker is not a commodity. And and Lee, you've you've you're you're starting a VC firm to invest in these kinds of businesses. I'm curious, like, do you think that it's it's obviously better if you're on the supply side of the marketplace, right? Where it's like you get to build a business around your passion where you're not a commodity, you're probably gonna earn a lot more, you're probably gonna be happier than you know, if you had an equivalent job like sort of where you're a cog in the machine or whatever is like the, you know, classic way to put it. And then there's also the demand side of like, you know, maybe, maybe this is better. Like I actually would prefer to buy from like a farmer who's live streaming, telling the story of the like tomato harvest this month. Like that sounds cool. I love that. But I'm curious, do you think it's driven more by supply side demand, like labor wanting to shift into like more secure, more fulfilling uses? Or do you think it's driven more by the demand side? Or do you think it's kind of equal? I'm, I'm just curious how yeah. you think about it, kind of the fundamental forces driving this shift yeah. that you're, that you're investing in. I love that question. On the supply side, I think that there is a timeless universal human desire underpinning the passion economy. It's been a timeless desire on the part of humans that we want to be able to make an income doing what we love. And we want to be able to unite our passions with our professions and not draw such a clear black and white line between our work life and our life life. I think most people would actually want the two to be integrated and to be able to enjoy what they do and to see themselves in their work. So I think that that has been a perennial human desire. It's just that prior to these large internet platforms existing and social networks reaching critical mass and connecting the whole world, I think it was really difficult for most people to be able to actually make a living this way because they lack the tools to be able to productize their knowledge or their skill sets to find customers. There were really huge search costs prior to the internet existing. And so I think we're, we're seeing this human desire finally be able to unleash itself because new platforms have come and actually enable people to do work in this way. And then I think on the demand side, I think there's, it, it depends on the specific vertical of what the consumer is looking for, but I think there's countless different industries where consumers actually don't view it as a commodity service, going to my last point. I think there's a small number of very simple, low stake services where people genuinely just view it as a commodity. And maybe ride sharing is one of those where you just want to get from point A to point B and you really don't care who it is that's doing the driving or whether a human is doing the driving at all. But I think for the vast majority of products and services that consumers are purchasing, it's also a fundamental desire to understand the story behind that and to be able to purchase a good or service from a human that we relate to rather than a nameless, faceless brand. Um, I think this is also what is underpinning the rise of solo capitalists to 
to tie back to the VC firm and the trends in the VC ecosystem. Currently, there's a rise of solo general partner firms that is happening, and lots of individual GPs are spinning up their own firms because they've cultivated this brand and this loyalty and following among founders and among the broader tech ecosystem. And I think that's an interesting facet of the passion economy, actually, because these are similarly, these are individuals who have cultivated a large following, put you know, their thinking out into the world, are learning very publicly, and are developing loyalty among founders who are saying, I don't want to go with this like firm that I don't really know or understand or know how Commoditized to navigate. Commoditized GPs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I yeah, want yeah. to go with this specific GP who I have come to know and trust. And so that's an example of the passion economy in the world of venture capital. Yeah, and totally. I should say, I've never thought of it, investing in a VC fund has never occurred to me. And then when I learned Lee was starting one, I jumped at the chance and I'm one of her first investors, I want to think, but I'm certainly an early investor and very excited. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I really want to underline what Lee said that I think the passion economy is the base case of the human experience. Like, I think of ivory soap, which some people think of as the first mass produced product, the first product that where there was a brand created. Ivory soap's a terrible soap. Ask any dermatologist, they'll tell you it dries out your skin. It, 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 it's not recommended. And, but it was you know, massive market share, 30, 40% market share for much of the 20th century. And as soon as there were new options, it disappeared. It's now like 3% market share. Yeah, and yeah. even though it's literally the oldest brand, it's you know, on, on its last legs. And I don't think like in the 20s, everyone was loving ivory soap. It was just the, the economics of that mass production scale just meant it was just imagine trying to create a soap that could reach people all over the world when you didn't have Sephora, you didn't have these labs that could kind of help you design your soap and produce your soap. I mean, there's just a host of features. If, if the three of us decided to make a soap, I would not be a good one to participate in that. But I mean, I use soap, but I don't know anything about it. But, you know, there's a ton of scent consultants and lotion consultants and others, and then third party manufacturers who could make it and drop shippers. There's just, we could create a soap and have it to customers trivially easy. And as soon as people have choice, they don't choose the mass produced thing. Now, I will say, I don't care about soap. I don't definitely don't care about shampoo. And, but so when I'm buying, there are, I do think the commodity economy continues and it probably right. continues in a robust way. And there are going to be goods that certainly I'm going to just go to Costco and get whatever the mass produced thing is. And there are economies of scale. I could, I think I can get a quality soup, soap and a quality soup at bargain basement prices, safe, delivered to my house if I don't particularly care about it. Right. So to me, that creates a surplus because I'm saving so much money. When you look at how much people pay for bare necessities, it's a tiny fraction of our income, whereas it used to be you know, most of our income. It frees me to focus on the consumer goods I want. On B2B, I think it's a different case. I think what you do have to make an argument that your passion B2B business is more expensive because it produces more real value. But I think right. you can make that argument. Hiring a generic ad agency or a whatever, a generic IT consultant, it might be cheaper, but might not 
create the efficiencies that will allow you to, to grow faster, to, to serve more clients. Totally. It sounds like, I don't know, tell me if you think I'm summarizing this correctly. If you want to be a differentiated provider, AKA something people will seek out, be loyal to, be willing to pay something of a premium for, then getting harder to compete as a kind of like mass market thing. And, and it's getting more individualized or it's essentially getting more and more fragmented and specific, um, especially as it relates to consumer stuff. Whereas well, it's like before it's like, okay, the New Yorker, very differentiated relative to like, you know, time or whatever. Time's also great, but they're just different publications, right? They've got their own focuses, but then there's like an individual writer at the New Yorker, right? That maybe like then just like unbundles themselves and goes direct to their readers. Maybe they start to write a little bit differently. They don't use the umlaut anymore. It's not actually an umlaut. What is it called? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we do use the umlaut. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. For cooperate. Like, and, and there's a certain story structure that the New Yorker kind of like expects. And I would like guess sort of enforces, like maybe pitch people like turn in drafts. The New Yorker's like, uh, no, no, no. Like we, here's, I don't know. I'm curious, Adam, if that's how it works. Like it's not a house. I mean, people accuse the New Yorker of having a house style that's imposed. It's not, it's more just there's a shared sensibility, so things emerge that way. Not always, but 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 I, I am aware of that. But yeah, I mean, it, it is true. I remember at one point in my career, I was talking to people at Bloomberg about a nice job there, and and someone at Bloomberg said was advising me not to take the job and said, at Bloomberg, you're always going to just be Bloomberg. Like they don't want Adam Davidson to be unique. They want you to be fungible. Whereas the New Yorker, its business model requires that you become a unique voice and, and it's just a better place to be a writer. So yes, I, I agree with that very much. Yeah. Fascinating. It's just interesting because it's kind of an example of like, there's sort of a spectrum from commoditization to total non-commoditization. It's like, on the one hand, you have like, you know, whatever, Instacart or Uber driver or whatever. Somewhere in the middle is you're a part of an institution. You adapt yourself to fit the institution a little bit. In exchange, you get a lot of distribution and, and promotion or whatever. And, and the predictability that consumers can expect is sort of like a benefit there. And so there's sort of like a middle ground. And, there's and then a, there's yeah. the whole, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's a real interplay between commoditization and passion. Like I, I sometimes say like everything that's in the passion economy, there is a commoditized component of it that's wrapped around, that has a wrapping of passion that it can be thicker or thinner depending on, on the case. So, and it's actually that commoditization that frees you up to do the passion work in many cases. So, I mean, trivially, like, you know, I, I'm old enough that I started as a reporter when no one had a computer. Like it just wasn't, I didn't have a computer till I was like 27 or something and everything was phone calls and it just took a lot of time just to find something out. And, and the ability now to land anywhere in the world, communicate very fluidly, um, create audio content or print content. You know, I, I really love all the commoditization of fiber optic lines and email right. services and all of that. It just gives me so much richness. Similarly, I do talk about accounting a lot because I actually have found it to be a great example. And, you know, I think a bad accountant or maybe not a bad accountant, a commoditized accountant is one who looks at automated audits or automated tax preparation and just feels terrified oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? But a passion economy, a, accountant is thrilled. Wow. All that boring commoditized stuff, a computer can do it really fast. And then I can focus on customer service or coming up with right. you know, tax efficiency plans or whatever it is that I want to 
do. Who would have would thought? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Lee, this is something I've wanted to ask you about. Something I've noticed is not VC level like scaling, but like affinity groups. So I do know of several accounting groups that might, there might be 80 accountants, 20, 200 accountants that sort of put themselves under a label. So there's thrival.com and there's the XPNY, I forget the name of the network. I know several of those networks. I know a, a network of engineers where they just sort of take a name and a sensibility and then someone who like, and, and it's not exactly a marketplace, it's more like a community. And I've had in my mind that that, I just wonder if that becomes a scalable thing where we can have marketplaces that have these kind of subgroups that sort of trust circles. I mean, now we're talking about trust pods when, in the COVID era, like, oh, if I need an accountant who does this, if they're in that group, then I'll probably like them. Because finding affinity matches or passion matches, it is just tricky. And it's, I, yeah. I assume there's AI tools and other tools, but at the end of the day, there, I think, at least for now, there has to be that some group of human beings who you feel have an affinity for sharing information that brings that together. Yeah, I, there's a comment in the chat that says sort of like the everything bundle. Yeah, I think the trend is that people are sort of, individuals are rebundling themselves into these groups or collectives or pods or whatever you wanna call them that are collaborating together and sort of maintain a similar level of quality, consistency, trust, and establish that among the members of the group. And I think, the tricky thing about the passion economy is when everyone is so differentiated and unique and there's so many different offerings out there, it becomes very challenging for consumers to find what it is that they're looking for and find yeah. the perfect match for them. Like the to use VC speak, like the search costs go up. And I think it's the job of every platform or marketplace to reduce search costs, um, to make it easier for people to be able to find what they're looking for with minimal effort, time, money spent. And to go back to the point of like passion businesses being somewhat commoditized, I think the it's a fact of life that like every marketplace needs to commoditize the workers and then inventory to some extent in order to even function as a marketplace. Like marketplaces have to take on the work of being able to organize all of the information and suppliers that are on the marketplace to make it easier for consumers to surface what it is that they want. So to some degree, like every writer on Substack is commoditized because when you go to Substack and you look for a business writer, you're filtering for a writer in a particular category and you're trying to look for the best business writing on Substack. I think a point where we might disagree, Adam, is like, is Etsy an example of the passion economy or not? And I think the answer to that question lies in how commoditized do you think the workers are and to what extent has the platform commoditized each Etsy seller versus customers being able to build loyalty with every seller. But I think Etsy is somewhere in that gray area between non-commoditized supply versus entirely commoditized supply. Like depending on the usage patterns of a consumer who comes on Etsy and whether they, they know they're looking for, you know, like a custom whatever necklace and they just look for search, type that into the search bar and pick whatever comes up top versus are they really going back to the same seller and starting with their storefront? 
depending on what pattern of usage is really the that's going on on Etsy, I think that informs whether or not I would consider it to be more gig or fashion economy. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I I, I did. I recently wrote a Substack newsletter called "Why Etsy Sucks," and I did. <laughs> I think pulling no punches. I, yes, um, and and I I. But I do hear what you're saying, that if Etsy's creating a platform for somebody to create a unique, to present their unique offering. I was thinking, and I saw, it's hard for me to read the, the chat as quickly, although there's some great, great comments and questions, but about search and discovery. And so in my experience, if you're looking at, it's very, the interface of Etsy, I feel like tends towards making it like, oh, there's a thousand people who are producing that same product. And then your mind goes to price. And to me, as soon as you're making decisions based on low price, you're sort of out of the passion economy and into another economy. So if someone has an Etsy store, but is using other avenues than just Etsy search to find their customers and match with them, then I would definitely agree that would be a passion opportunity. My instinct is at least the stuff I'm passionate about, which tends to be handmade stationery and stuff because I'm very precious. That stuff feels like people are being encouraged to fit into some boxes rather than, as opposed to like, what is it, tindy.com or tindle.com, the, where it's like incredibly geeky, custom-made little boards for ham radio enthusiasts or people who want to like learn like it where it like there no two products are alike at all there you have yeah. to have an enormous amount of information and engagement to even understand what the product is you don't understand what any of the words are that might be too much of an extreme in the other direction but yeah but i i, I don't think we wildly disagree yeah cool we've got a few more minutes to, oh go ahead oh yeah i was just gonna say I know, I feel like we could speak for seven hours. I was gonna say, I think I think what is happening today and what I see is happening as a result of these new platforms existing is that there's an explosion of different offerings made by individuals, whether it's individually written newsletters or individual storefronts on Shopify or individual courses that are being created by an expert in some category. So right now we're in this like, uh, phase of the economy where like there's so many more offerings being offered by individuals who've been empowered with new means of creation to the title of this show um, to create something entirely new. And I think what's going to happen as a result of that is that consumers do experience some fatigue, decision fatigue around what to pick and how to surface the best things for them that match their preferences. And I think rebundling together offerings like how the Everything newsletter has done serves to alleviate some of those search costs and makes it easier for consumers to be able to easily tell, okay, this thing is like going to be high quality and I'm going to spend the time to read it. But I, I do think a lot about like who are going to be the ultimate winners in this ecosystem and like what does it actually take to succeed as an individual seller? Like part of what I'm interested in from a VC investor perspective is the underlying platforms that make it possible to create something and to form an individual business and to put something out there into the market. I think what is going to happen to those businesses that get built on top of those platforms is that a lot of them are just lifestyle businesses and people are 
you know, sole entrepreneurs and creating a single newsletter or single course and perhaps making a good living off of that. And a lot of them probably don't rise to the level of being a billion dollar business, but it's sort of like the, yeah, there's a ton of lifestyle businesses that are enabled for people to be able to make a comfortable living off of what they're passionate about. But I think where the big businesses are going to be built are in the underlying platforms. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do think we're at the very early stages. Like I picture, you know, some farmer in Kansas walking into a general store in 1882 or whatever. And the guy's like, oh, do you want some of this soap? And he's, what are you talking about? What is that soap? Oh, it came from Cleveland. It's called Ivory. And you're like, what? What is that? I never it heard of it. And, uh, you know, it took a while to get you. And, and the things that had to be invented and came, it took a, decades, you know, branding, trusted distribution, IP protection, so that I, the next person, you know, and fixed pricing, which wasn't a thing, you know, you used to walk into a general store and say, I'll take this much soap, and they'd chop it off and charge you, you know, and you'd negotiate a little. So I, I feel like we're sort of like that farmer, maybe, you know, walking into the store and, and, and we don't, we see there's a thing, but we can't, we don't know it, it, it's hard. It's certainly hard for me to see the fullness of what's going to exist in 10 or 15 years. But I do feel 100% confident that we have identified something that a lot of people will see as investable and we will see those those new solutions being developed. And that's very exciting. Yeah, totally. I think we maybe have question like time for one question, one or two potentially, but there's one, there's one that I think is really relevant to everything we we're just talking about that, that I like a lot, which is horizontal platforms versus vertical platforms where a horizontal platform is built around like a medium or a format like video or newsletters and a vertical form platform is built around like maybe a specific interest, like, you know, business or, or craft goods or something like that. And I'm very curious if you think, uh, one will be more successful than the other? Like, what have you seen so far? How may it change in the future? What are the forces that drive, that drive kind of like the difference in, in those approaches to building marketplaces for the, plot, for the passion economy? Mm -hmm. I just wrote a really long blog post about this. It's at lee.substack.com. It's called Unbundling Work from Employment. And it basically talks about how we're in this phase of history where people are being unbundled from traditional employment and a traditional employer-employee relationship and being able to go into business on their own as a sole individual because platforms are taking on many of the functions that a company used to offer. Um, and so if you decompose what a traditional employer relationship was like, which was that it was, it was comprised of like compensation, benefits, other vertical specific um, services like editing or insurance, libel insurance in, in the context of Substack, an office space, teammates and camaraderie, et cetera. Like if you decompose all of those elements of a traditional employment relationship, then I think the opportunities to build both vertical specific and horizontal platforms emerge. Where for instance, like there could be a horizontal platform that provides the, the team and the camaraderie for people across different industries to collaborate and to find each other, but maybe monetization is taken care of through a vertical specific platform like Substack. So both is my answer. Yeah. I also think Substack is such a good case study because they take very seriously, they really want to, and 
you know, none of us, certainly not me, are making money off of Substack. I know you did at one I point. Sorry. And, you know, <laughs> uh, but I just, um, full disclosure. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I, I would happily say negative things about Substack, but I really like Substack. But they, they, part of what they sell to a creator is it's your relationship with your audience. Any day of the week, I can just take it all. I have all the email addresses. I could go set up my own WordPress newsletter. I could do whatever I want. And I don't, I don't need Substack. And it's actually something I'm now, my company is a joint venture with Sony Music. It's something the music industry has went through where they used mm. to be able to charge admission for artists. No artist could really be an artist without one of the music companies, music, musical artists, without a big label signing them. And now Beyonce doesn't need Sony. Bruce Springsteen doesn't need Sony. Sony needs them. And so it changes the relationship where Sony has to provide such compelling services, et cetera. So to me, the hope would be that platforms, both vertical and hard, that you know, some people might have a their own portfolio of platforms they use, Substack for newsletter, something else for podcasting, something else. And the creator and the end user don't really look at the platform as a key fact. It's just the, that it's that relationship that is valuable. I think that creates, in my mind, good incentives on the platforms to, to actually provide added service and not just create barriers to entry and exit for creators and, and subscribers. Totally. I like this other question. I think it's super timely, which is in this age of cancel culture, how do you minimize the danger of tying your income to your online identity? I actually think of the passion economy model as an antidote to the cancel, to cancel culture. And I say that because of what is playing out right now, where a few writers, editors, authors have mentioned that the only solution that they really see to being canceled is to form a direct relationship with their audience and to monetize them directly. Like that basically lets them bypass the risk of losing employment completely from a company. I think companies and traditional employment relationships actually represent having just one, one true fan to quote Kevin Kelly, like if you lose that one fan who's your your employer, like you lose entire your entire income. Whereas if you can get your hundred or thousand true fans paying for whatever it is you're offering, you can actually be more resilient and maintain at least economic independence and not lose your entire income when you get canceled. I would just say you know, to me, that is a subset of just all the hazards of having a single employer, especially if the single employer is in a business that's really struggling to, to, to succeed. And so, you know, and, and I'll just say this might be um, political or whatever, but, you know, I think anti-cancel culture is a real threat as well, as well as, you know, like I, you know, I do think like I get afraid that I'm going to accidentally say something and be canceled. But at the same time, I think there are political uses of calling things canceled. You know, so the journalist in me is worried. There are real problems with journalism, but when when you can increasingly kind of bubbleify your news and information, right? Um, I, I I get afraid for. I don't have a solution really, but I would just yeah. say, to me, it's funny. I left NPR a while ago. And I was telling everyone who worked there, like, yes, it's a union job. It's a decent paying job. It has good benefits. And it's insanely risky to 
continue. I mean, I left in my, I guess my early 40s and I just felt like if I stay here another decade, it's just gonna be too late. I need to hustle. And, and I, I, I looked to my peers who stayed in a, in a large corporation. I think that's long-term, that's a riskier bet. In any given month, it's safer to keep the paycheck, to keep the benefits, to keep the union job. But I think whether it's because you're canceled or just a company had to downsize or just right. a boss didn't like you for whatever reason, don't tie yourself to a single fan. Totally. Um, not even like you that much. There's this classic idea of like bargaining power of buyers where like you're in a better business position if your buyers have less bargaining power and who could have more bargaining power than like a single employer that like you have to take on all this financial risk and, and, and career risk and, and life risk if you like want to part ways. Whereas if you have a market where lots of people are paying you, you're, you're diversifying your sources of income in a way and it's, you know, it's better. The same principle applies to individuals as it does to, to companies in that case. Yeah. I will say though, it is risky. Like it is risky. I, I, in my mind, it's more short-term risky and less long-term risky, but I don't think you have to be rich. I don't think you have to have rich parents. I have amazing, lovely parents who are listening right now, but they were artists. They're not rich. I think, but you have to have some base level of like, okay, if my new passion thing completely fails, I can sleep on my parents' couch or something. And, and, and I do take that seriously, that there's a you know, a significant number of people who are left out, at least for now, from the yeah. passion economy because they really can't take on even a few days of risk, let alone months or years of risk. You know, I mean, Lee and I are both in the midst of creating new businesses. Well, so are you, Nathan. All three of us are, and they're all three going to be very successful, but they might also not be, but we're embracing that risk. I don't think any one of us comes from like massive wealth, but we're we're in a position where we can take on a little bit of risk. Yeah. And, and, and that's a benefit. I think it's a lot more people than people realize it's, but it's not everybody. Totally. My wife and I are living with our in-laws right now, which certainly helps take on that risk. And it's funny. And it's, I plan yeah. to move in with your in-laws if things go bad. So just so yeah, exactly. Know. We're getting, we're, we're getting used to the permanent case here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like we could go on for like a really long time. Should we, should we basically start to wrap it up? We've gone on a little bit over, I feel like we could do it forever though. Yeah, I feel bad for all of the amazing, thoughtful questions that are in here. Maybe we should do a round two in an upcoming week. Thrilled. Oh, this was so yeah. much fun and round so two. many great questions I would love to get at. So yeah. I would Looks love like there's Perfect. demand for a round two in the chat. We can maybe okay, almost round two could up. be like more <laughs> chat focused and less just like us talking focused and more, more Q&A focused. So look out for that. We've got all of your email addresses because you're RCP'd. So we'll email you whenever the round two exists. And round three, we already have demand round for round three. I gotta um, say, I love this conversation. So yeah. joy. Let's do it. Me too. Sure. Maybe this Perfect. is the Passion Economy Roundtable uh, weekly. <laughs> Adam and Lee, it's been amazing to uh, be able to interview about these topics. Thank you guys so much for attending. Have a great weekend, everyone. 